I can see why you like that song. It's a great song. All right, we are coming to Isaiah chapter six. It is one all of course, all of the word of God is inspired by God. All of it is profitable for training, for correction, for reproof, but there are certain chapters that just stand out, and this is one of them, Isaiah chapter six. And as I come to this passage, I have to ask myself, like the Apostle Paul, who is adequate to preach it, uh, because it so resonates the glory of God, the only one who is actually adequate to preach it is Jesus Christ. He isn't here. So you've got a clay cup instead. Sorry. <laughs> All right. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their eyes heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. Let's pray. Lord, illuminate the eyes of our hearts to have a correct view of who You are and that we might have hope. So give us attention, Lord, to Your Word. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. In A.W. Tozer's classic book that Carol Hardy has been teaching, The Knowledge of the Holy, at the introduction, A.W. Tozer says this, is that whatever we think of when we think of God is the most important thing about us. Stop and think about that again. Whatever we think of when we think of God is the most important thing about us. This is normally the way we think. Whatever I think about myself is the most important thing about me. But that is not true. Whatever we think of when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So obviously, the point is that we need to think about God correctly. We need a a correct view of God. Now, we know that for the most part, unbelievers do not have a correct view of God. They may have some parts of God correct, but for the most part, they do not. 
But what is disturbing is that more and more in evangelicalism, those who claim to know the Bible and to know God as their Savior, do not have a correct view of God. Um, And to prove the point, let me just read a little bit from uh, the book God Under Fire. It says this, For much of the 20th century, the very notion of God was under fire. Belief in God is regarded by most Western intellectuals as a vestige of pre-modern heritage to be shed with all superstition. The God of the Bible was considered too powerful, too primitive, and too irritable for modern taste and was let go. But now God is back and being welcomed with open arms. However, the careful observer will note, however, that God has come back from a cultural exile quite different. This newer version is a kinder, gentler God, less threatening, more congenial, and more affirming. No longer the almighty, all-glorious center of the universe, this God seems to be more centered on us, less interested in obedience, and more concerned with our happiness. This God is actually quite harmless, supportive of all religion on every one side, Since no one is alienated from this deity, no one needs salvation from sin. On the contrary, God seems to think quite a lot of us. One wonders if this deity underwent psychotherapy while gone and came back more open and relaxed, having worked through whatever was bothering him back then. This God is more gender neutral or possibly female, but is never to be referred to with the male pronoun by most reckoning God is much more acceptable than uh, before being exiled. God seems to have learned some important lessons in how to relate to humans, and it worked. God is more popular than ever. Is this the version that Isaiah sees? I don't think so. In fact, the version that Isaiah sees is not like what most people think God is like today. But uh, Isaiah is a good model for us because Isaiah actually saw God. So let's listen to what Isaiah has to say about God so that we have a correct view of God, right? Yes. Well, let's set the stage. He says in the year of King Uzziah's death, King Uzziah was one of the better kings of the nation of Judah. Uh, he was a good king. He, under his reign, uh, there was great prosperity, uh, second probably only to King Solomon. Uh, he was a good king, but not a perfect king. Towards the end of his reign, he took it upon himself to go into the temple of God, which kings were not allowed to do. And he was struck with leprosy and remained that way until he died. And now that he died, this prosperous king, you might expect that maybe Isaiah, maybe the people of Judah would be uh, anxious as to know what the future holds. Uh, We can relate to that, can't we? As we see our culture imploding, Um, what does the future hold for us? And so uh, this applies to us today. And so it says that in the year of King Uzziah's death, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. Who is this Lord high and lifted up? I suggest to you that this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And the reason I would say that is because in John chapter 12, 
It says that Isaiah saw my glory, referring to Jesus Christ. And also, whenever we see a theophany, that is, uh, uh, we see something of God, it is always Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the visible manifestation of the triune Godhead. So that what Isaiah is seeing here is the pre-incarnate Christ before His glory, visible glory, is set aside during His humiliation. Philippians chapter 2 talks about that. So he is seeing the Lord uh, Jesus Christ in all of His glory. And Jesus Christ is setting upon His throne. And His robe fills the temple. I don't think that this is the earthly temple. I think that it's a heavenly one that He is seeing here. And sitting upon His throne carries the idea of absolute, complete sovereignty. He is the sovereign King. And what we mean by that is that whatever God has decreed, it will come to pass, and nothing can thwart the plans and decrees of God. Later on in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, Isaiah says this, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. You know, I grew up on a farm and when I was at elementary age, probably 10, 11, something like that, one of the duties of a farm boy was to take five-gallon buckets of water and go out and water the livestock. And so for a 10-year-old to carry a five-gallon bucket of water, it was heavy. It would be abuse today. <laughs> anyway. Um, but nevertheless, you know, the parents said that's what you have to do. And if I'm carrying these five-gallon buckets of water, and a drop of water accidentally comes out of the bucket, would I notice it? Would you notice it? You see, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are of no concern concerning the sovereignty of God. You know, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar learned that the hard way. Remember? Oh, look at what all that I have done. Really? Uh, uh, really, Nebuchadnezzar? Well, for the next seven years or whatever, you're going to be like an animal until you acknowledge that I am the sovereign king. Thank you very much. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the good news is that because he is the sovereign king, we don't have to be anxious about today or tomorrow. Um, you know, I, in Philippians it says, do not be anxious. And I never used to like that commandment because I've always thought to myself, well, how can anybody eradicate anxiety? Because it's always right there, isn't it? But I think the point that the Scriptures are making is that you don't have to be anxious because God is in absolute control. Not only to our ultimate destination, but um, even... Uh, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And so we don't need to be anxious. But you know, God's sovereignty raises actually a couple of questions that we need to address. If God is absolutely sovereign, then what about evil? Why doesn't God do something about evil? Um, and so God is often impugned along these lines. And, um, you know, I think the answer is, 
is a simple answer is this, is that, you know, John, uh, all great theologians have struggled with this question. All Christians do. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, his proposal was this, and I believe that it is biblical, is that God has decreed that there will be evil and sin in the world, but he is not the direct author of it. For instance, when God created everything, he said, it is good, very good. And then Adam and Eve sinned. You know, uh, when Satan came to Adam, he said, you know, if you take of this fruit, or Eve, if you take of this fruit, uh, you'll become like God. You'll know good and evil. Well, it was partly true. They wouldn't become like God, but they would know good and evil. And when Adam partook of it, now sin enters into the world and evil as a result. This did not catch God by surprise, obviously. God had decreed that there would be sin and evil in the world, but He is not the direct author of it. In other words, He did not tempt Adam and Eve to sin. Satan did. <clears throat> but somehow God weaves it all together for His glory. Uh, by the way, He will take care of, sin, of evil. He already did it at the cross, and in the future, He will deal with it permanently when He is reigning. So therefore, Psalm 2, kiss the Son before it's too late. The other thing when we talk about the sovereignty of God is what about human responsibility or human will? How does those two things mesh? Well, the only one who actually had free will were Adam and Eve. They had a free will to either choose God or to reject God. And because they rejected God, all of us have inherited that sin. And so all of humanity is in bondage to sin. Our wills are in bondage to sin. John chapter 8. Jesus said, who commits sin is now a slave of sin. And it is only by the Spirit of God who liberates our wills so that we willingly accept Christ. By the way, it wasn't you. The guy up here, whoever that was. He said, Ephesians 1, who was that? Jeff, thank you very much. <clears throat> um, uh, is that it is God who has caused us to be born again so that He receives all the glory. I don't know about you, but I was spiritually dead. And if the Spirit of God hadn't moved in my heart, I would still be in unbelief. Oh, actually, A.W. Tozer in his book, when he has a chapter about sovereignty, he gives, a, a, I think, a good illustration of sovereignty and God's human, uh, the sovereignty of God and man's uh, human ability to choose. <clears throat> we have the ability to choose. Unfortunately, we always just choose that which is sinful. But he uses the illustration is that if you could imagine all of humanity on a luxury liner, and God is the captain of the luxury liner, and nobody can have a coup, obviously, against the king, and he is directing this luxury liner to its destination, and there is nobody that can thwart that destination. However, the people are free to move about on the boat and do whatever you want, but God is going to make certain that it goes to the des destination that he has determined. Our God is sovereign, sitting upon the throne. So the next thing we notice is that there's a declaration by the angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Wow. It is so impressive that even the angels must cover their eyes. And um, 
You know, the, there's only one attribute in all of the Bible that is repeated three times. Guess what it was? Holy, holy, holy. <laughs> there we go. Not that hard. <clears throat> it's a $100 Jeopardy question. Um, it doesn't say mercy, 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 as wonderful as that is. It doesn't say love, 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 as wonderful as that is. It doesn't say grace, 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 as wonderful as that is. It's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In other words, the holiness of God is the essence of who our God is. It is the, it is the description that fits the best of who our God is. I like to use this illustration. The holiness of God is like the hub of His attributes. And the holiness of God gives beauty to all of the other attributes. His holy love, His holy mercy, His holy grace, and so on. And so that His holiness is the essence of who our God is. And so, what does it mean to be holy? Normally, we think of sinlessness, which is true, and I'll address in just a moment, but Actually, part of holiness also refers to God's transcendence-ness. In other words, God is not a part of His creation. He is infinitely separated from it, and yet intimately involved with it. But He is above and beyond His creation. Um, and Stop and think about that for just a moment. He's above and beyond His creation. You know, the next closest star to our planet outside of the sun, I forget the name of it, don't Google it right now, you can, is four light years away. Four light years away. The next closest star outside of the sun. And light travels at 186,000 miles per second. So just to give you some idea, the circumference of our planet is roughly 25,000 miles. So that in one second, light can go around our planet nearly eight times. That's how fast light is, and it takes four light years to get to the next closest star. It is sort of humbling for Star Trekkies and Star Warsies that we can't just move about in the universe quickly from one place to another. And we also know that that's just a star in our galaxy. And we know that there are thousands of stars in our galaxy, and there are thousands of galaxies with thousands of stars. From our perspective, creation appears to be immeasurable. Like, who can really comprehend it? And yet, in Isaiah chapter 40, it says that God measures the universe with a span of His hand. Wow. From God's perspective, it's very small. Also in Isaiah chapter 40, when He created everything, it was like for Him, it was like pulling close the curtain for us at night. No big deal. He simply spoke and it came into existence. God is far greater than His creation. Again, it appears to be immeasurable to us, but not to God at all. In fact, it seems rather small to God. And then, holiness also refers to God's sinlessness. Again, Jesus Christ is upon His throne. Psalm 89 and Psalm 97. It says that the foundation of 
Our Savior's throne is one of righteousness and justice. Pure righteousness, pure justice, a holy light. Wow. You know, it's amazing how the average person thinks that they can approach this holy God in their own merit. When I was in St. Louis, I got to know what I thought was the greatest evangelist I had ever met. His name is Charlie. I call him Charlie the Evangelist. And uh, he had worked up this seven-question questionnaire that we would go around the neighborhood and ask people, would you mind taking this questionnaire? And some of them did. Went to the malls and did the same thing. And the last two questions were this. If you were to die tonight, uh, are you certain you'd go to heaven? What do you think most people said? Hmm, not sure. Hope so. Not, I don't know. So then you ask the next question. Okay, so if you were to stand before heaven's gate and God were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? What do you think most people said? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I live a good life. Um, I try to keep the golden rule. I try to do the Ten Commandments. We didn't ask them what the Ten Commandments were, by the way. Um, but most people think that they can stand before holy God in their own merit. Big mistake. Big mistake. What happens when Isaiah sees the holiness of God? He says, I am lost. I am lost. Woe unto me, I am lost. I can't stand before a holy God. Why? Because standing in front of the holiness of God and His holy light, all of our sin is exposed for all of its ugliness. Now, when I was younger, uh, I remember going into a restaurant, into the restroom, and there was a mirror there, and there was dim light. And as I looked at myself in the mirror, I thought to myself, I look pretty good. Carol is lucky to be married to me. <laughs> I, I didn't really say that. I just, but I, well, I don't know. Maybe I thought, I don't know. Mm-mm. But now, since then, I've gone into another, a number of restaurants, into the restroom, and there are brilliant lights. Whoever came up with that idea? And I look at myself in the mirror with those bright lights, and I go, oh my, thank you, honey, for marrying me. <laughs> I look terrible. Every imperfection, and oh my goodness. Now, if that is true of looking at ourselves in the mirror with a bright light, how much more before a holy God can anybody dare claim, hey, I think I'm good enough? Really? No. Isaiah says, woe is me. I am lost. There is no way that I can appear before a holy God in my own merit. And notice the sin that he points out. He doesn't point out the sin of murder, uh, adultery, uh, a thief, um, some type of uh, addict of some sort. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I think it's a reference to his tongue. I mean, James says, who can control their tongue, right? We've all sinned with our tongue, with no exception. And if you think you haven't sinned with your tongue, 
you're a liar. You've sinned with your tongue. You've convinced yourself. We've all done this. You know, James makes the point that with this little tongue, it's sort of like a match. A, a little match can set an entire force fire and destroy it. I mean, how many times the tongue has destroyed marriages? It has destroyed churches. It has destroyed nations. This little tongue. You see, we're all guilty of it. I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. I am lost. I deserve eternal damnation. I can't bridge the gap to the holy God. But thankfully, it doesn't end here. The angels bring a burning coal and place it on his lips. We have to understand here is that the angels are not forgiving Isaiah. The Pharisees were right when Jesus healed, and Jesus said, You are forgiven. And they said, Only God can forgive sins. They were right about that. Only God can forgive sins. And so it's not the angels who are forgiving Isaiah, it is God, Jesus Christ, ultimately. And he says, It makes atonement for sin. Um, you know, again, most people think that God can just sort of wink sin away. I mean, he's a loving God, right? Can he just forgive me? The answer is no. The reason why is because his throne is built on righteousness and justice. God's justice demands that payment be made for our sin. God can't just wink it away. Payment must be made. Atonement. That's what we mean here. Is that a payment must be paid. And the only one as we know who has made the payment is the Lord Jesus Christ. And only He can do it because He was the perfect sacrifice, because He was the God-man. And when He was upon the cross for three hours, He was experiencing hell not for his sins, but for ours. That's why he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, who is sinless? Is because he was being punished for our sins. And when he had finished, he says, It is finished. He had completed the work of redemption. So that when he physically died on the cross, he didn't go to hell to suffer more. He went to hell to announce his victory. And he immediately went to paradise. But Jesus Christ paid it in full. And so, if a person wants to appear before a holy God, you must go to someone who has made atonement for our sins. And the only one who has done it is Jesus Christ. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, no other person, only Jesus Christ has made atonement for sin. Thank you, Jesus. And so as we put these two things together is that God's sovereignty, His holiness, and His mercy and atonement, we sort of have to hold these in tension, don't we, as Christians? We must remember that our God is always holy and sovereign, so it makes us humble. But at the same time, our God is atoning and loving and gracious and merciful to us who are believers and so that we always have access into His holy presence, Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, 10. And therefore, we can always uh, uh, sup on His love, His mercy, and His grace. 
because when we see His holiness, we're reminded of our sin, but when we think that He has made atonement, we understand that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as I said, we can come into His presence and enjoy Him without fear of reproach and condemnation. He loves us with an infinite love. But these two ideas of God must be held in tension. Finally, he says, our God is ascending God. Who will go for me to deliver my message, says God. Isaiah says, hey, I'll go. That's rather interesting, by the way, because Moses said, why don't you get somebody else? That's probably where most of us land, is why don't you get somebody else? Isaiah says, hey, I'll go. Hey, and this is what I want you to do, Isaiah. I want you to give the people my message. And what is the message? Predominantly judgment, but not exclusively. Uh, uh, Isaiah's message, really, at the end of the day, is about God's holiness and um, the promise of a Savior, Isaiah chapter 9. The government will rest upon his shoulders, Isaiah 53. He will make atonement for sin. Isaiah 65, there's going to be a millennial kingdom. And so his message just wasn't all negative. There was plenty of positive things as well. But the message that Isaiah was to proclaim is the whole ball of wax. Not just what appears to be profitable or nice for people. And God already anticipates, by the way, most people are not going to like what you have to say. You know, I wonder if Isaiah ever thought to himself, you know, maybe if I just change the message just a little bit or, you know, don't say so much on judgment, you know, just say the positive things you don't like at the beginning of this book. Let's make God more of a sort of benevolent grandpa, you know, like I am. (laughs) Well, I don't know. Don't ask my grandkids. But no, you know, in the same way, we have been sent heavily haven't we? Individually, we are to be spokesmen for God. We are ambassadors. And collectively, as a church, we are to send missionaries and so forth. And One of the things, however, we must not dare do is to um, shrink the message of God or present a God uh, that is not uh, all of His entirety. Again, as this book brings out at the very beginning, we must present to the world a holy God and an atoning God, a sovereign God. But we must not <clears throat> shrink the message to gain a crowd. You know, uh, in Acts chapter 20, Paul, as he is leaving the Ephesians church, he said, I'm innocent of all men's blood. A reference to the book of Ezekiel, by the way, is that you need to warn people of coming judgment. And And Paul says, I'm innocent of all men's blood, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I shared the good things and the tough things. And then when he is leaving the scene about ready to be martyred, he says the same thing to to Timothy. I jury before the living God that you preach the word of God, because in the last days people want to have their ears tickled, but you don't do it. You need to preach the whole counsel. Uh, Of course, we don't just preach damnation. We preach love, grace, as we've already said. I just want to make that very clear. But from time to time, we have to preach the tough stuff, don't we? You know, I remember when I was in St. Louis, and uh, I came across a passage that had to do with hell. Uh, Not seeker-friendly. 
And uh, but it was in a passage, and so I preached it. I go where angels fear to go, and um, uh, on this particular, uh, I can still remember that there were two visitors in a congregation about this size, and so you you can pick up on visitors quickly. And and uh, they were uh, young ladies, and um, I'm preaching this on hell. And I knew, by the way, that some of my elders didn't appreciate the message. They like it to be more seeker friendly, and <clears throat> but uh, so what? Um, so anyway, I'm preaching away. At the end of the sermon, I make a beeline down to these ladies because I'm hoping to catch them before they run out in horror, <laughs> screaming, and and uh, so as I'm talking to them, it became pretty clear that one of them was a believer. And she had brought her uh, sister-in-law with her. It was the first time she had ever been in a Protestant church in her life. And uh, it came out in the course of the conversation. And these gals were in their 20s. Not that I asked their age. It came out later. So I'm not that, ins- I'm not that much of a clod. Um, <clears throat> so you know, normally you think that that type of crowd doesn't like the negativity, or so it appears of God. And so anyway, anyway I, asked, I asked this gal who had never been in the Protestant church before, I said, so did you understand the message? And she said, it was awesome. I never heard anything like that before in my life. You know, on the outside, you want to have some type of dignity as a pastor. So you go, mm-hmm. On the inside, I'm going, all right. This is amazing. Who would have guessed it? She later went on and became part of a women's Bible study, and I think she got saved. You know, God can use His Word in different ways, can He? But we don't have the luxury of just painting a God that we think the culture will like. Uh, We are to present a God as the Scriptures proclaim Him. He is the sovereign God. He is the holy God. He is the atoning God. He is the sending God. And we love Him for it. Don't we? Yes. So, at the very beginning, A.W. Tozer said, whatever we think of when we think of God is the most important thing about us. And so, we need to constantly, even as... Christians, even as evangelicals, we need to constantly be thinking these things through, don't we? Because we're all sinners by nature, and our focus of the true God gets fuzzy at times, so that's where we go back to the Scriptures and remind ourselves, no, this is our God, and we love Him because of who He is. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before Your holy presence, we are all humbled. We all have to confess we are sinners. But we thank You so much, Lord, that You have atoned for our sins. And that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That You want us to draw near to You so that we might enter into Your rest, enter into Your praise, to understand Your love. We hold these two truths in tension, Lord, with delight. We love it that You are the Sovereign King and the Atoning King. And help us, Lord, to share that message whenever we have an opportunity. For it's in Your name we pray. 
Amen.